Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. our way through the book of P of Second Peter. We're making good progress. We should be done in a couple weeks with that and as we continue on. But in Second Peter chapter 3, we're going to be changing gears just a little bit as we look at the foolishness of distorted theology. The foolishness of distorted theology. Let me open up by asking this question. Does God intervene in the natural world? Does God intervene in the natural world? Does God, is God now in, involved in the affairs of men and women today? Does he reach through or is he, or is he just wound us up as deism like a clock and just allows us just to continue to go about? Is there a day in which Christ will return? Is there a day in which judgment will be executed? Can we trust the promises of God. That's what we're going to discover here as we go in 2 Peter chapter 3 in the first seven verses. In chapter 2, you might recall that Peter identified the character and the behavior of the false teachers. They were shameless men who used their influence to entice others to follow them in their foolish pursuit of passions and promising freedom. Instead, they only enslaved those who were seduced by their charismatic personalities and persuasive speech. Instead of finding satisfaction and clarity in the false promises, their disciples were left parched and confused. In denying the second coming of Christ and the future judgment, they were guilty of denying, dismissing, and distorting not only the word of God, but also the teachings of Jesus and the instructions of the apostles. Instead of finding salvation through their own devices, these false teachers and those who follow them instead will be judged by God when Christ returns. That's where we find ourselves as we go to this third chapter. Now, as we go in today's passage, the disordered theology of the false teacher is going to continue to be rebutted by Peter as he now addresses the third objection of the false teachers. Now you might recall that the first two objections, as first is, you apostles made all up this teaching of Jesus coming again and the future judgment. The objection was you made it up. You're just trying to, to control people. You're just trying to, to take care uh, or, or make people do what you want. Their second objection is that there would be no day of judgment. We should live the way that we want. Enjoy life today was their model. Their third objection, as we'll look at today, is that if Jesus is coming back, why is it taking so long? Life is the same as has always been. God does not intervene. So with that, let's read 2 Peter chapter 3 as we start in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires." 
They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Father, Open your word, this ancient letter written to an ancient people far from here and from our culture. But let us realize the relevancy that's found in your word. For us here today, he is still speaking throughout the time by the spirit through us. We thank you for that. So let us approach this word with reverence and with an awe-inspiring desire to know it, to understand it and to respond to your work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. In chapter 3, Peter focuses on instructions for Christians. He calls them the beloved. So he's now not writing to the false teachers. He's addressing the beloved, the Christians. He says, I want you to know I love you. I care for you. And he wants them to combat the distorted theology of the false teachers. He mentions that this is his second letter written to instruct and encourage them to live lives of holiness and godliness. With your finger there in 2 Peter, would you turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1? Just probably a few pages in your Bible. And as you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, go down to verse 13. And just as a matter to recall, to remind ourselves as he does to them, Peter encourages these elect exiles in Asia Minor to prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now you might recall our scripture reading that Landon read earlier that he also said at the revealing of Christ. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's interesting, he's writing to them in 1 Peter, and he's really getting them the same thing in 2 Peter. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. This was prepared them. Now, when he wrote this, he was preparing them to live in a world that was hostile to their faith. This is how you endure suffering. Remember as we looked at first people, how to endure suffering in a world that is hostile to your faith. But now in this second letter, Peter also encourages them in verses five through seven of chapter one. And you might go there back to second Peter chapter one. Look at this in verse five. Remember this, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Now in these two letters, his command for them is to prepare them to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. You might recall Dustin took us through that part of the passage so that they may be able to combat the distorted theology of this, of those within, inside the church. 
First Peter was to help them endure suffering from hostility outside. Now he's encouraged them and preparing them to combat the distorted theology that comes from hostility inside the church. Peter's aim in both letters is to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He understands the importance of thinking clearly and biblically. Let me share with you. You and I need to get, grasp this godly skill. This godly skill of wisdom of thinking clearly, biblically, and clearly what the Bible says. The word sincere here means to be wholesome and pure, spotless, as if being exposed to sunlight or a purifying process. It's to come out and say, look at the light. It looks good as you hold it up. The mind simply means, as one theologian writes, the part of the inner person that thinks and processes information that helps you understand, including that of making choices. It's the seat of what is of our heart and our emotion. Sincere minds means minds that are uncontaminated and unmixed by the seductive influences of the world. And let me share with you. As much as that was important in Peter's day, it is important in our day today. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians and pastors and churches whose minds are contaminated by the seductive influence of the world. You see it as churches are pulled away from teaching of the Bible, from the difficult doctrines of grace and the difficult uh, uh, truths of Scripture. And we find ourselves looking more to be consumers of, of spiritual, I'll say, entertainment. We need to find ourselves and we need to think biblically and clearly on the things that God has given. Paul reflects on the importance of a sincere mind when he wrote to the church of Philippi, when he says, brother, whatever is true and honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. So Peter writes to stir up, to arouse, to provoke, and to spur these Christians to think biblically. And he attempts to do this by reminding them, by remembering. And he wants to remind them in these two letters of their former ignorance and the death sentence that awaits those who are under the wrath of God. That's you and I. Everyone at birth, we're under that wrath and that justice. But he also wants to remind us of the goodness of God who chose us for salvation and has adopted us as children. And then he wants to remind them of the necessity, and let me tell you once again, of the necessity for the Christian, the believer, to grow in continued sanctification and our need to diligently to confirm our calling by living lives of holiness and godliness. That's our call today, to live lives of holiness and godliness in a world that is hostile to our faith and a hold to the truth of God's word that has been given by the apostles inside the church, the faith that was once given. Now, as we go on in 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 2. Peter reminds them, what he wants to remind them in this chapter is of the predictions 
the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he's given through three things. He goes, I want you to remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets, the scriptures that we had at that time. I want to remind you of the commandments of our Lord and Savior and also that which has been given to us. <coughs> Excuse me. Wow, that, I don't know where that came from. Through the apostles. He says the prediction that Peter is referring to is the second coming of Jesus as king to rescue his people and to judge sin. Malachi prophesied 400 years before Christ. As you look at the monitor in Malachi chapter 4. Look what this Old Testament prophet prophesied. For behold, the day is coming. It's burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. That day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither roots nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out and leaping like calves from the stall. What a promise. But also in there, he's saying there's patience. This happened 400 years ago, this was promised. Jesus himself promised in John chapter 14 to his disciples. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Peter is saying, I need you to remember the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. I need you to remember the promises of Jesus, our Savior. I want you to remember, he says, that of the apostles who wrote, as we read earlier, to the church of Thessalonica. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that is among you. How you turned to God from idols so that you may serve the living God and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. He's calling us to wait during this delay. He wants us to believe, to trust. This describes our salvation and our mission. It's our salvation, the fact that you and I here today, if you here have proclaimed yourself to be a Christian, you have turned from gods to serve the living and true God. Amen? Now those gods may not be made of stone and gold and jewelry, but they are gods nonetheless. It could be our families, it could be our career, it could be money, power, sex, pleasure, experiments, whatever it may be. You have turned from that. But he also says, not only have you turned from that, but now your mission is to wait. To wait for his son from heaven. So Peter's just saying, remember. And you know what? He's speaking throughout history as he says the same thing to you and I. You have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Now wait for his son. However, these false teachers, they have forgotten this. They no longer hold to this truth. Like any good teacher, Peter wants to remind them of what they've been taught. It's been so easy to forget what we've learned over time, have we not? Let me ask you, how many of you used algebra this week? Probably not too many of us. 
Maybe there's a few of you. Let me ask, have you ever have you sat down this week to conjugate any verbs? Diagram any sentences? Maybe a few of you. Okay, there's always going to be, there's always one. Yeah, these things we don't do very often. Now, let me ask, have you sat around in a circle with your family and friends and just sat down and list all the presidents and vice presidents and the year, years they served? Probably even less. And some of these things are very important and some of these things we probably use without knowing. But yet some of them might just be things that are only good when it comes to trivia. However, the things that we need to understand is the things that we have learned and studied and tested on can be easily forgotten without continually practice and reminder. So Paul wants to remind them of the predictions of the Old Testament prophets. He wants to remind them of the promises of Jesus who said, I will come back for you. He wants them to remember the exhortations and the encouragement of the apostles who said there is a delay. We must wait for his coming together. Here Peter finds it necessary to remind these elect exiles in Asia Minor to remember that scripture both warns that God will come to judge the wicked, but he also will come to reward the faithful. Amen. And I want to encourage you with those same words. The writer of Hebrew informs us as you look on the monitor of Hebrews chapter 9, where he says, just as appointed after man wants to die. And after that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin. He, he's died once for all. But look, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me ask you, does that describe you? Are you eagerly waiting for him? Or are you eagerly waiting for me to finish so you can go to lunch? Are you eagerly waiting for the NBA game to start? Or are you eagerly waiting so you can hurry up and go see Avengers on Tuesday morning? I, 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 don't call me on Tuesday morning, by the way. I, I, I have an appointment on Tuesday after morning. What are you eagerly waiting for? I'm eagerly waiting for a new grandson to come. I'm excited about that. Excited for Landon and Nicole and all the blessings that God has for us. And all those things are good. But yet you and I need to eagerly await. How often do we say, Lord, come quickly? Not too often. Our lives are busy. You and I forget the things that are of most importance. The reason for the reminder is given in verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. When he writes this, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. The Apostle Paul gives a similar warning in Acts 20 when he gathered the elders, knowing that his time was near the end. And he gathers them and says, come, I need, need to speak to you. And he's talking to those in Asia Minor. He says, I know that after my departure, Fierce wolves will come among you, and they not sparing the flock, and they will come from, not from outside, but from within, from your own selves. You will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away from disciples. Here we are, probably just about that same time, and Peter is predicting, be ready. These men are going to be coming. They are going to distort the theology, the teachings, and the instructions of God's word, our Savior, and the apostles. 
Be alert. Be warned. Do not fall for it. The reason for their scoffing is their own sinful desires. These men and women are so hell-bent in following after their own passions and pleasures that they have distorted the doctrine of Christ's return. Remember, they denied any future return of Jesus and a future judgment. They denied it in order to justify their own wicked lifestyles. And they were not satisfied in seeking their own pleasure, but they wanted to draw others to join them in their debauchery. The false teachers followed their own sinful desires, mocking the teachings of Jesus and the apostles as quaint, controlling, and unnecessary. Now, what is alarming here, what is alarming Peter here and hurting the church was that the false teachers were emotionally manipulating the church. And you need to understand that. Many times that's their method of operation here is that they're, they're emotionally and mentally manipulating the church with ridicule and disappointment by questioning Jesus' return. John MacArthur notes that the early church believed that Jesus was coming back immediately. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as Jesus is ascending into heaven, an angel appears to the disciples and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken to you up from, or up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. There's a promise there. They were looking forward to this day. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51, Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep go to or die. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. There is an anticipation. There is a promise with an anticipation that we will be changed. That no longer we'll be living in these fleshly tents that break down and tear up. No longer will we have to fight with the presence of sin, fighting the power of sin. They're looking forward to this. And so they're using this promise and their anticipation to emotionally manipulate them through ridicule and disappointment. We see this clearly in verse 4. When Peter predicts, this is what they will say. Where is the promise of his coming. Where is he? Where is he? Where is Jesus? Where is God? Some in the early church were even worried that they had missed the second coming. Or there were some that were worried that those who had died already would not be resurrected. The apostle Paul addresses these concerns in First and Second Thessalonians. And he instructs them this, encourage one another with these words, knowing that the church is waiting. They're waiting as Jesus is delaying his second coming, as justice is delayed, as final salvation is delayed. All these things predicted by the prophets and instructed by Jesus. He says, encourage them in the, with these words. And what were those words? For God has not destined us for wrath, amen? But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake 
or asleep, you and I might live with him. Promise, anticipation, but also there is a delay and you and I must hold on to that truth and be patient for Christ is coming. Whether it's now or for those who have gone to sleep, who have passed away, Christ will return. But they're purposely mocking the Christians, knowing that these servants of Christ were patiently enduring suffering from a world that was hostile to their faith. They understood that these elect exiles suffered economic hardship and social ostracization and family division. They selfishly enticed them to abandon their faith. Come, follow me. Following the words of God and the apostles, it's not worth it. Join us in our debauchery. Listen to our distorted theology. Their argument against the return of Christ and the future judgment was based on the premise found in the second part of verse 4. Here's where we get to their distorted theology. Here is what they were saying. Christ is not going to return. There is not going to be a future judgment. For where is Christ? In verse 4, look at verse 4b. We see here the distorted theology. Here is their argument. Their thinking process. They write, Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as from the beginning of creation. Basically, their argument was that the natural world is uniform. Uniformitism. Nothing has changed from the beginning. God does not intervene in the affairs of man or creation. Does this sound familiar? Deism. That God does not intervene. It's the, it's the theory of evolution. All things are as the same. And I don't remember how many of you were in our gen unlocking Genesis, but we see that the Bible tells us this, that the world has not been uniformed throughout the world. That's why evolution doesn't have the answers because they, they cannot explain that. In essence, they are teaching that there is no sense in denying oneself. There is no sense in picking up the cross. It is fruitless to pursue a, God, a life of godliness. You are born, you live, and then you die. That is all that life is. You are born, you live, and then you die. And since God is a God of grace, he will forgive all things. There is no sense to not enjoy the pleasures of the world and all it has to offer. That's still the clarion call of the world. It just goes on. Just until it all blows up. So just enjoy life. The world has been progressing according to the natural laws, they said, with, with regularity and stability. There is no need for God to intervene into the world or even return. If Christ is not returning, then you and I not need to understand there is no judgment. Their theology was dripping with skepticism. They weren't the first skeptics, by the way, in Scripture. Jeremiah, we see, behold, God says to, to Israel, where is, the, where is the word of the Lord and let it come? Where is the word of the Lord? We don't see him. 
In Malachi, they ask, where is the God of justice? And many cry out that, time, that, that type of terms. You and I many times ourselves question, where is God? Where is God in the death of little Alfie? Where is God in a traffic accident? Where is God in the cancer of my wife, my daughter? Where is God in a tsunami or a hurricane? Where is God in wars? Where is God in politics and culture? Are you sure he's coming? Doesn't seem like things have changed at all. Skepticism, ridicule, maligning the great promises of God was what these false teachers were doing. You and I are, should be aware enough to know that that's the same thing that happens today with those who accuse God of not being involved. Now, as we move to verse 5, Peter's going to list three facts to counter this distorted theology. So what I want you to do, I want you to stay there in 2 Peter, but also turn back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look at two, two portions of the scriptures as we go. Now, Peter is going to counter their distorted theology. Again, remember, their distorted theology is that everything has remained stable and regular since the beginning of time. God does not intervene. Well, we're going to see three ways in which God has or will intervene. Peter's argument is this. Number one, God intervened at creation. Look at verse five. Peter writes, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Peter simply points out that they overlooked the fact that creation and its stability actually proves divine intervention. That they deliberately overlooked when he writes that describes their self-will and their ignorance of God's creative act as written by, as written by Moses in Genesis chapter 1. You're in Genesis chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2. Moses writes in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, now look at this, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, you and I all know, for the most part, by memory, verse 1. But verse 2 is important as it tells us that the world at the beginning was created inhospitable to life. And it was into this chaos and void that God created all things. The rest of Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God spoke all things into existence by his mouth. He said, let there be, let there be. Peter informs us that God created by his word and by the water, the spirit hovering over the face of the water. Dr. Schreiner writes that Peter emphasized here that the original creation was formed and takes shape by God's word. The psalmist sings that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Not only that, but scripture tells us that God is actively sustaining life at this very moment. He's intervening even at this very moment. Colossians tells us that Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
As you come here to the monitor, you'll see Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Where he writes, he is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But he goes on to say of Jesus, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he were to take away his word or his power at this very moment, all of creation would cease to exist. In John chapter 1, if you can turn very quickly, you may see in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not made anything that was made. What do we see through scripture that they overlook, they, that they deliberately overlook? That God intervened at creation by his word. And the very stability, the very regularity that they use to dismiss God is God intervening at that very moment. Number two, not only did God intervene in creation, but we see in the second one that God intervened at the flood. Look at verse six of 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, And that by means of these, speaking of the word and the water, the world that then existed was, existed was deluged with water and perished. Now back to Genesis chapter 6. Checking your dexterity out this morning. In Genesis chapter 6 verse 11, we see that now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17 tells us, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall what? Die. These false teachers' minds are so sin-sick and diseased that they either ignored or were blinded to the truth that was found in Scripture. Peter argues, argues that by God's word and water, he supernaturally judged a wicked generation while rescuing Noah and his family. Now, you and I saw this same, same theme in chapter 2, but God knows how to judge the wicked and to rescue the godly. So as we look at the things that they overly, uh, over, uh, deliberately overlooked in their theology, that God intervened at creation, all things exist because of him. All things hold their matter because of him. They also overlooked the fact that God intervened supernaturally at the flood in which he spoke and used water to destroy the world. But what we see here is the third counter-argument of Paul, is that God will intervene in the future. Once again, God will intervene in judging and rescuing. Look at verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but by the same word, the heaven and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. You want to know what's going to happen to this world? Scripture tells us it's stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Again, Peter points out that by God's word, he will judge and destroy the wicked. However, this time it will not be with water, but with fire. 
You may remember in Genesis 9 that God promised not to destroy the world with, with, uh, the world with water. So in the future judgment, he will use fire. Scripture again gives us this prediction and this promise. In Psalms 97, the psalmist writes, Fire goes before him and it burns up his adversaries all around. Look at the monitor at Isaiah 30, 30, again written 400 years before Christ, where he says, or I'm sorry, actually longer, almost 700 years. The Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. With Amos 7, 4 saying, this is what the Lord has shown me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Let me tell you, talk about global warming. There will be a day when that will come to be, but it will not be by man's hand, but by the word of God. As the cosmic world will flow up to fire. Now we'll see a little bit more of this next week as we continue. But what you and I need to understand now that God is now sustaining this world. He is holding back his wrath and his justice. But one day, mark my words, be reminded of this, that one day he will send Christ back to this world to make right all the wrongs, to rule in righteousness and justice. These false teachers will be proven to be false and they will face the punishment of their rebellion and rejection of Jesus. Their arguments will fall on deaf ears. They will see that Christ was right, that the instructions of the apostles was true and that the word of God is to be trusted. These false teachers know will realize their error too late, that judgment is not a myth, and that God does intervene in the affairs of man. And may I give you another example? Not only does it intervene at creation, at the flood, and in the future, but I'm saying here today that you yourself are just examples, living examples and proofs that God has intervened. For he has reached down into each and every one of our hearts to remove that heart of stone and to give us the heart of the Spirit. Amen. That he reaches down and regenerates us. That he has adopted us as his own. That he sent his son to die for us to accomplish what we could not do. Be perfect before the Almighty God. Without that intervention, you and I would be hopeless. Amen. You and I would be lost. You and I would be facing the judgment and wrath of God with no hope. But yet we have it because of the gospel. Where is the promise of his coming? For all things have continued as they have. That is a distorted theology of the word of God and of the teachings of Christ and the instructions and exhortations of the apostles to wait eagerly for Christ will return. Until then, live lives of godliness and holiness. Endure suffering as a good soldier of Christ. Amen? This is what he's called you and I to do. Paul is writing to remind them, to encourage them. And his words are echoing down the halls of history and time here. As you and I hear the same exhortation, we are facing the same uh, dilemma that they are. And we need that reminder. 
The apostles wrote 260 chapters in the Bible with over 300 references to the second coming and Christians need to accept that. You and I need to embrace the return of Christ and the future judgment of the world. This doctrine of the second coming of Christ is the source of our comfort, is the source of our encouragement, is the source of our motivation to serve God by pursuing lives of holiness and godliness. One theologian notes that the moral standard of believers was summed up on the teachings of Jesus when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So let us eagerly wait for the one who is coming for his children. For he knows how to judge the wicked, but to rescue the godly. Until then, we need to endure the suffering. Be reminded that you and I are called to wait for his coming. You and I need to be aware of the dangers of distorting the word of God. I'm sure that if we took a poll here this morning, many of you would agree that Jesus is coming again to rescue the godly and to punish the judgment. I, I have no doubt of that. However, you and I must be alert to the other ways that false teachers and the world try to ridicule and manipulate Christians to abandon other doctrines and commands of Scripture. For some may use that as a way, but there are other ways that the world is doing that inside the church. Words such as, it's not necessary to go to church every Sunday. You can watch it on TV or the internet. You don't need to be a member of a church. You don't need to be involved in serving. There's some who would say, well, the Bible isn't relevant today. Why are you letting it control your life? Or others who distort the theology of God that say the Bible has been misinterpreted and mistranslated over the years. You cannot trust it. Or others who may cry out, God created us so that you and I may flourish. Human flourishing is, the, is kind of the mantra today. I understand what they're saying, but there is so much about that phrase that I just do not like. For it makes you the center of the universe once again. They say make most of life, enjoy it to the fullest. You and I could go on with those that are distorting and twisting scriptures to justify their own selfish pursuit and sin. There's those that now pursue and teach a doctrine that is so horrendous Everything from same-sex attraction to same-sex marriage to gender dysphoria to divorce, greed, racist attitudes, bigotry, and so on. But do not be deceived, beloved. Remember the words of God that have been brought to us by his prophets, by Jesus and the apostles. I would just encourage you, do not overlook these facts but follow the command of the writer of Hebrews who writes in Hebrews chapter uh, 10. It's here on the monitor. Mark these in. Brand this on your heart. Let us consider how to stir up, to provoke, to arouse one another to love and to good works. That's the essence of living a life of holiness and godliness. It is the essence of the great commandment. Not neglecting to meet together as there's a habit of some, but you and I are to be encouraging one, one another and all the more as you see what? The day drawing near. What's the day? 
It's a day of Lord. It's a day when Christ returns and judgment is given and rewards to the faithful. Until that day, let us wait patiently, rejecting the disordered theology of those who would twist and manipulate the Bible to fit their own needs. Let us never be said of us that we have ignored, deliberately overlooked the true word of God, his promises. Let us wait with anticipation for the coming of Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, as the worship team comes up, I just want to challenge and encourage you. God may be calling you to a different response. So I just want to challenge you. Would you pursue holiness and godliness? Would you make a commitment? If you're here this morning, if you're struggling seeing God at work, let me share with you, God does work in the hearts of people today. He is intervening in the politics, in the culture, and in the life of this world. Let us give him glory for that. Would you pray that God would help you to eagerly wait patiently for the coming of our great God and Savior. Until that day, let us live soberly and righteously in this present world. Father, we just come before you and we thank you for your word. Father, let it powerfully just fall on us this morning. Give us a holy discontent as we go to lunch and to the rest of our day that we must consider these words. You are calling us to something. Lord, there may be some that just need to be strengthened to be reminded of this truth. There's some that need to look at their theology and, and question, are my thinking biblically and clearly about your word? There's some that may be saying, Lord, I've been living for myself, but I must repent and confess. Father, strengthen and encourage us, whatever you may be calling us to do, that we would do so today as children of God. We thank you for this opportunity in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.